Hi, I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Jason Lee. Listen to our free podcast, Voices of Reason, unless you enjoy screaming matches. Nope, you're not going to hear that with us. You'll hear folks who may disagree, but seek to understand different views. That's Voices of Reason on the KSL Radio app or wherever you find interesting podcasts. On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11, for Dave and Dijanovic. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the best editors I work with uh, understand the subjects that they're editing, and they understand the writers that they're working with. So if you're, if you're going to, um, and we probably should back up and say th- there are a lot of companies out there who are looking at their media strategies and going, you know, it just doesn't make sense for us to try to hire a PR firm and pay them $10,000 a month uh, retainer and then get these media placements in dying news outlets. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Christopher Elliott. Thanks for making time. Hey, Jess. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, So can you give people, uh, I'm going to go deep into your background and stuff, but can you give people just the one minute, went to journalism school, written for the Washington Post and U.S. Today and all all this stuff, and you've got, tell them what Elliot.org does, and then we'll we'll dive into it. Okay, sure. Uh, Well, uh, as you said, I'm a professional journalist. Um, I write for, I do a weekly column for the Washington Post on travel. I do a column for USA Today, also about travel and more of the intersection between customer service and travel. And then I do two nationally syndicated columns. Both are very brief Q&A columns uh, that present a reader problem and then fixes it. It usually means that I go after a company and get a refund or an apology or something like that. Um, I... Uh, also, I've started two nonprofit organizations. One of them is called Elliot Advocacy. I know, very original name. But basically, what we do is we help anyone who needs help with a consumer problem. So, if you have a problem with a an appliance that exploded, or a car that turned out to be a lemon, or a, a plane ticket that you couldn't use, you would go to the site, which is Elliot.org, two L's, two T's, and you would fill out a little form, and one of our volunteers or I would help you. And uh, as I said, frequently we would contact the company on your behalf and, and try to mediate a fair resolution. So that's what I do. So, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of nonprofits out in their world. What What motivated you to start this one? Well, as I probably said before, this is my second nonprofit that I started, and I've always felt that journalism should be something that's done in the public interest. So being a nonprofit was something that it just seemed like a very natural fit. Um, I also have a background. Uh, Most of my family are do-gooders. My father was a minister for his entire career. He grew up overseas. So I really feel uh, an, an obligation. Maybe it's just the way I was raised to do good. Yeah. And and why do good in this way? What was it what was it that called you to to work on this? Well, I was on the road to Damascus and suddenly I saw no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, no, I uh it, it was almost something like that though where it, 
was just um, I was sitting in my office, nothing so dramatic, and and I got a call from someone who needed help. And I realized at that point that there was no one there who was going to help this poor reader. Uh, and and so I kind of dropped what I was doing and uh, and tried to help as best I could. I mean, journalists get calls like this all the time. Um, and you you have a decision to make at that point. Do you just say, hey, I don't do that kind of work. I'm just a reporter. Or do you say, you know what? I'm going to take off my reporter hat and I'm going to see what I can do to help you. And maybe it's just finding a phone number or getting some information. But at some point, that felt really right. Um, and I think a lot of folks get into journalism because they want to do something good. And they think that maybe their journalism will change the world. My philosophy is that the journalism can change the world one person at a time. You don't have to write the, the Pulitzer Prize winning series in order to change something. Sometimes you can just do it one person at a time. So when you think about uh, all the different ways to do good in the world, what was it about you know helping helping people in this way who are not being taken care of by the rental car agencies or the airlines or any of these kind of places that you thought, this is what I want to do with my time. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of journalists get into this to write the big award-winning series that get Pulitzer Prizes and things like that. And what I found was that, you know, if you stop what you're doing and roll up your sleeves and just help one person, that that can often make as much of a difference as, you know, that big series. So for me, helping people, one customer, one reader at a time felt right. And so that's what I decided to do. I love it. You know, I was thinking about, uh, as you were talking there, I was thinking about our lunch and uh, and just as you explained to me more and more about how you help these people who, in a lot of ways, I mean, I thought about uh, different folks I know, even just certain family members that um, are relatives that maybe grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, and they, they just don't know how the system works. So they show up and maybe they uh, get a little emotional at a frontline customer service rep who really can't fix the problem, and then they just throw up their hands and they just... They're not as sophisticated at making their way through how society works. And and I just I guess I really saw it as such a public service for some of the people in my life that if they had access to people like you, you know, maybe things could be a little more fair. Well, see, that's the thing is that they do have access to me. I mean, I, I run a, a website and a nonprofit and they contact me anytime. And, uh, you know, your listeners can can do that as well. Uh, it's really easy to reach me at Elliot.org with two L's and two T's. It probably sounds a little bit repetitive saying that, but um, more to the point, though, you know, in our conversation, we talked about people not being sophisticated, and I would beg to differ about that. Okay. Because yeah, go on. I think that people, you know, people know what good service is. Um, it's a little bit like pornography, you know, you know when you see it. Um, and so they don't need to be told when someone is uh, giving them bad service. The, the issue really is that um, companies have created this fortress around them of um, phone trees and uh, virtual chat, things like that. And, and, and also these call centers with a lot of very scripted responses where people can't go off their script. And uh, the, the object is to make people go away. So it, it's not so much that we don't know how to access that. In, in a perfect world, we would just ask for better service and we would get it. It's a matter of companies making a very cold, calculating decision that says, if we can turn away X amount of customers who want help, then we're going to make more money. Or if we create a customer hostile policy, um, of course, they don't they don't consider it customer hostile. They, they consider it more of a free market thing. Though we're just giving people what they want. But um, if we do that, then you know, we'll make more money if we just, if, you know, if enough people walk away and don't get what they 
so there's a real, uh, there actually have been studies done that, uh, that confirm customers, uh, uh, companies that offer bad customer service actually can be more profitable. Um, so it's, it's kind of like, yeah, if there are people who do need help and I love helping them, but it's also companies who really don't want help. Yeah, they've made a maze hoping you don't get to the end where they have to pay back, right? Exactly. Interesting. Well, I, I do want to talk more about your your background and and how deep your understanding is to be able to know how those things work, um, you know, I, I guess maybe a place to start is I look back at your career and I'm seeing all these logos: MSNBC, CBS, National Geographic, Traveler. You know, besides obviously Washington Post and USA Today. Um, as you look at your decades of experience here, what are some of the biggest changes that you see coming in the media industry? I mean, we, we've all seen the we've all seen the changes over the last twenty years. Where do you think it's going? Oh wow, that's such a current question now because you know we just uh, laid National Geographic Traveler to rest, and I was with National Geographic Traveler for more than sixteen years. Um, it really does change, and just when you think that it's uh, slowing down or that things are getting settled, someone else dies or another media organization goes away. Um, you know, it's really hard to say. I think that the la- the latest is is really a very encouraging development, and that is that the very serious journalists, the career journalists, are saying, you know, we're done with the clickbait, we're done with algorithms, and we are we are going to take our journalism where it matters. We're going to find an audience willing to pay for it. Um, and so you have startups like I just heard of the Dispatch this morning, uh, which is going for an all subscriber model. They're not even bothering with ads. Um, and I think that that's really encouraging because if they work, if it works, then you you could have a, a whole new ecosystem of um, of content that that has found a, a model that works where you can you can actually sustain it. Uh, they create newsletters, websites, podcasts, and and it's uh, it's independent of this very constricting algorithm that rewards clickbait and cat videos and things like that. So I'm, I'm really optimistic about the future, I think. You know, and I, I would like to think that our organization has a part of it. We have a, a huge journalism component in what we do at, at Elliott Advocacy, where we, we create content based on the cases that we resolve. And I, I think that there is a bright future for news outlets and news organizations like us that still do serious journalism. You know, it, it's interesting. I think about, I don't know, I think about, I don't know, 97 or whatever, 96, whenever my, you know, whenever we we got internet, right? And uh, just like how great it was to get all this stuff for free. And like, you know, 15 years of that, people, you know, they basically predicted the end of journalism because everybody's going to want everything for free and, you know, this kind of thing. And, and there's certainly been big upsets in that world. But it's interesting now to observe when you look at when you look at things like YouTube Premium. You know, I know it's not print, right? But you look at YouTube Premium and people who are willing to pay to quit being so bothered with ads, which I was, you know, one of the first people to sign up for that back when it was YouTube Red, right? And like we've had enough free. It's almost like with enough quality, at some point people start looking for more quality. Would you would you say that different? Do you see it different? No, I see it exactly the same way. I think that there's some uh, free fatigue. Remember, when something is free, then you're usually the product. So, uh, so we're we're, uh, we're at an inflection point, I think, uh, when it comes to, to content, where 
people are saying, you know, um, I'm just done with getting the same clickbaity stories that, you know, over and over again, you know, the five ways to or whatever, whatever the headline is, headline format du jour is. And I think that people want to, to sink their teeth into something more serious, more engaging. And that costs money. You can't, that doesn't just happen for free. Um, so the, the, the media is evolving and it's taking us to a better place than I think we were five years or 10 years ago, where it really was chaos, anarchy, and you had people like Ariana Huffington, who, who rose to fame by posting cat videos. That was her thing, you know. I don't think that could work now anymore, and that's, that's probably a good thing. It means that, that the media is coming of age. You know, it's interesting, and I know we're just kind of repeating the same thing here, but the thought that came to mind, because I have kids, is like, at some point when the kid is just gorged themselves in Halloween candy, you know, they start picking out the best stuff and, and they start putting the candy corn on the side or the other things, right? And it, it is interesting how like, especially as life goes on and you start realizing how much more valuable your time is, right? Like I think the younger version of myself, I treated my time like it was, it was plentiful, never ending and free, right? And so if I had to spend more time to get something for free, that seemed like such a great deal. Where nowadays you start thinking like, wow, I am pretty busy. And getting good stuff efficiently without all of the uh, fluff and 16 pop-ups and that kind of stuff, like it, it's definitely become more compelling to me at least. I love the Halloween analogy because I'm having the same conversation with my kids right now. Uh, we're, we're in L.A. and we're talking about where we want to go trick-or-treating. I have a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. And, you know, it's interesting because I said, hey, instead of, you know, instead of just canvassing the neighborhood and getting all that junk, why don't I just give you a candy allowance and you get the really good stuff that you want? <laughs> and, then, and then we'll just walk around in costumes and have a good time and not feel any pressure to get candy. And, um, I, I, and they said, yeah, let's do that. That sounds like a really good idea. Now, I, I think that probably they're going to, to take the candy allowance and then they're going to also try to, to uh, do some trick-or-treating on the side and then, you know, get extra. But <laughs> the same thing happens with us, you know. It's that, okay, no one likes candy corn. I don't know why they give candy corn away on Halloween, but no one likes it. And it ends up getting put into, like, the let's give this away bag um, or store it somewhere in the house. But with, with content, um, to, to continue the analogy here, with content, I think people are really bored by reading the same stories over and over and over again. And if you know anything about SEO, you know, the, you know that there are certain headline constructions that always, that Google will always reward for whatever reason. People will always click on them. And you're sitting there as a content person and going, I'd like to write an intelligent headline for once. I don't want to write something for the merchant. I want to write something for the readers, something that really describes what the story is about. And we're getting to the point where we, I think we can actually start to do that now. You know, it's interesting because, like you said, if the kids can go get a little extra candy on the side, they probably will as well, right? Like, I know that if I had to pay for every article on LinkedIn, but I had to pay first and then see if it was good, I might be less likely to do some of those things, right? Like, there's a there's such a low barrier to entry for free that, that there's big advantages for it, especially like brands who are trying to get attention in the first place. But then there is that other profitable part of the market for the highest quality stuff. You know, 
you would think with as many hours of free video on YouTube every day that are getting uploaded and as many free articles and, um, you know, however many million blogs out there that book sales would go down because look at all this information you can get for free, right? Um, so it's interesting to me as you see the book industry actually rising in revenues um, despite the just people being completely swamped with free, you know? However, it has to be a book so good that your buddy is saying, this is so good. No, really, you need to read this one, right? Um, mm -hmm. there's, there, is such, there is a higher bar, but it's obviously a much more profitable place to be, right? I think so. I mean, it used to be, take national syndication, for example. You, when you got nationally syndicated, uh, someone would basically flip a switch and you would be in 200 newspapers. Um, do they all want to read your column? No. Uh, but now it's a little different now if you want to get your nationally syndicated column into a paper. You guys probably have to go out and sell yourself, and then someone will flip the switch for that just that one paper, and then your syndicate will take whatever their cut is half of it. Um, and it means that only the publications that are getting that are taking your content are ones that actually want it. And, and, and I think that the same thing is going on on a much larger scale where people the, – the, the, Quality of the journalism is, if, if you're going to pay for it, at least it's going to have to be much, much better. Um, and and the thing is, is that there are, are journalists out there right now who are capable of producing that, but morale is so low. I mean, you, I, I visited with a newspaper editor just yesterday, and you know, there's she's gone from a section of 13 journalists to having just one and a half staffers, basically. So morale is really, really low right now. But if we can find a model that works. I think we can go back to the days when there were multiple staffers really creating great com uh, com commentary and content. And, <clears throat> and, I, and I think that we, are, we have to get there because the alternative is that uh, the, the cat videos and the clickbait headlines take over, and then we're left with uh, where no one is being served. It's, you know, we're, we're just looking at junk all day long. Yeah, I think we've all had that experience of internet surfing, and like an hour later, you just feel as empty as when you were watching sitcoms in the 90s. You're like, wow, that was the worst. <laughs> you know, that was completely yeah. use of two hours, right? Um, so, you know, yeah. I think, and, and this is one of the reasons I was re really excited when we got connected. Um, there's so many of us that we see, we see what it's like at those major media companies on, on the movies or something like this. Um, but for the rest of us who haven't been to the Washington Post before, can you pull back the curtains a bit on, um, like, what's one of the what's one of the cool things? Like, what's one of the rewards of the fun things of actually getting to work with you know top media organizations globally? You know, whether that's National Geographic, US Today, Washington Post. Like, what's been fun about your career at that level? Well, uh, I love what I do. I should probably start by saying that I think I have the best job on earth. So, really, really love helping people and writing. Um, working for a major media organization, you get to work with editors who are really at the top of their game. And um, this is not just me blowing smoke. And there is a difference between an editor who cares and an editor who doesn't care. And, and I've had editors in my uh, career who have just given a story a quick copy, edited, and then sent it onto the, to the desk to, to be published. And um, that was not always a good thing. I mean, the, you know, as a journalist, you like to write something good where the editor goes, hey, I have no suggestions. This is great. But a really good editor will take a story that's filed and say, here are some areas where I think it can be improved. And if you're receptive 
organization like the Washington Post or USA Today, you get to work with these top-flight, high-caliber, really, really good editors who care deeply about what you're writing. They want you to look good, and they want the story to help readers. And so they, they will go back and forth with you as many times as necessary to make the story uh, better. Now, I will say there is such a thing as, as caring too much. I've worked for an outlet. I won't tell you what the outlet's name was, but you probably can guess. For the editors, um, you know how Fox News says, we report, you decide. Well, the unofficial motto of this news organization was, we decide, you report. Hmm. And they thought of us journalists being their stenographers. Hmm. So they, we would file stories, and, and the editors would come in, and they would say, ah, that's not story. This is the story, and it would be a complete rewrite. And in the end, that wouldn't be the story. So I've dealt with that as well. So it is possible to overdo it. But nowadays, I just would be lucky to find one editor who really cares. And I, I think that I work with a lot of editors who do care. Yeah. You know, um, if you had advice, like, you know, and I really want to dive into this in the in the second part of the interview here. But, you know, as you have turned your advocacy group, Elliot.org, into essentially its own media organization, and there's, you know, there's so many folks that are recognizing that in some ways, you know, from an advertising perspective with the stranglehold of Google and Facebook these days, like, it might be cheaper to become the media than to just pay to advertise on it sometimes, right? Um, what advice would you have for somebody who... They have really, they've really decided to move more this direction, and they want to be a good editor. So make you look good. Make sure it's helping the readers. Any other, any other high points for someone who wants to be a better editor? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the best editors I work with uh, understand the subjects that they're editing, and they understand the writers that they're working with. So if you're, if you're going to, um, and we probably should back up and say th there are a lot of companies out there who are looking at their media strategies and going, you know, it just doesn't make sense for us to try to hire a PR firm and pay them $10,000 a month uh, retainer and then get these media placements in dying news outlets. It just makes no sense. So if you're thinking about doing something that's a little unorthodox and maybe creating your own news organization or your own news site, it really, you know, you, you, you want to start with having a good editor or editors. And those are people who understand the model, understand the product that you're selling. Um, I mean, let's just take insurance, for example. You don't want to hire someone who has a journalism degree but doesn't really understand insurance. You want to maybe hire someone who used to cover insurance and can, and, you know, knows knows the difference between, um, you know, a, a, a premium and a, an underwriter. And, and, I mean, there are people in, in the journalism field who do not know what an underwriter is. And uh, so you, you want people to know the product very well. And then from there, you can go on and hire people who can create really good, compelling content for you. Yeah. Well, and, and maybe I'll modify my question because I was asking how to be a better editor, but it, it does bring the point of like, you know, maybe becoming the editor isn't the best choice and maybe hiring them is. If you had to hire, if you had to hire an editor um, and you were looking at screening candidates and uh, there's a bunch of them that, that seem like, yeah, they kind of understand our industry. They, they have a, they have a good journalism background and, and there's, you know, you get a number of candidates, you know, you weed some out and you get down to like a handful of candidates. I'm feeling good about these three. We need to pick between these three. What are some, what are some critical items for you? What are, what's going to be a decision, a decision factor for you? Uh, ice. 
kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I mean, obviously, you, want, you don't want someone who's going to cost too much, but um, that wouldn't be my first criteria, though. Um, I think, you know, Jess, I would find out how well they work with other people. I would call their references and find out if they have good um, bedside manner because yeah. some of the worst editors I've worked with don't have the people skills, and you really want someone who has people skills. Um, gosh, I mean, I remember one editor... She was a book editor. This was for my second book, and she used to uh, she used to write into the margin. Um, you know, it, it just I want this I want this chapter rewritten. And at the bottom, she would put an all uppercase fix with an uppercase, you know, with a with a um, exclamation point at the end of it. And uh, by the end of the process, I didn't want to do any of the things, even if I thought they might be useful or helpful in making it a better book. I didn't want to do any of the things because she had no people skills. Yeah. So I would find out first of all if if that person can work well with others um you know all things being equal if the person is qualified and the price checks out make sure that that person actually you know maybe bring them in for an interview and talk to them too i think you can find out a lot by just having a conversation and maybe asking something like see uh if, if i if i were to write something like this how would you fix it? and then find out if they take out a big red pen and start putting lines through it writing an all uppercase no that's not the person for you because that you don't want to have that kind of an editor you know, I love that. And and I apologize. We should have brought up your books before, you know, uh, Scammed, How to Save Your Money and Find Better Service in a World of Schemes, Swindles, and Shady Deals, and uh, How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler. Those are both on Amazon, people. But, um, you know, I, I really like that advice, and, and we should probably end part one here, but um, I'm thinking about um, – I'm thinking about bad hires that I've made, you know, and it's like, man, they just interviewed so well. I was so sure. Right. And your advice of like actually having them do the work, like try them out, not just by words, but <laughs> by like giving them a test and saying like, great, let's try this out. <laughs> Can you, edit, you know, how about this? Uh, you know, I, why do you think so many of us don't do that? Why do you think we trust that we have an above average judge of character <laughs> instead of having actually people do work and then seeing what that's like? I really don't know. Um, I've, I've always been an independent contractor my entire life, my entire career, basically. Uh, and so I've always been the person sitting on the other side of the table. Mm. Um, but uh, but I have had some experience in um, making staffing decisions for a nonprofit where we're dealing with entirely with volunteers. And there's an added element there that you're not paying them. <laughs> um, and, and I can tell you that, yeah, there are a lot of people who interview really well, but then in the end, they don't uh, work out so well. The ones who, in my experience, didn't work out well were the ones who immediately placed boundaries around when they were available and were available. So they would say, like, I only have this hour on this day, and I don't work on weekends, or don't call me after hours because I'm not available, and I have a sick cat at home or something like that. And um, those are usually, you know, I, I will usually weed those out because it sounds a lot like they're uh, doing you a favor, and volunteering for a nonprofit is not is not that at all. Um, but then also, you can really quickly tell when someone is not doing well um, in the getting along with others department. And I've had that issue too. Um, really difficult to screen for that though, because they're going to put their best foot forward when they're in an interview with you, and you can't you often can't see the character flaws are the weaknesses that would um, make them not get along well with others. You just have to, I think that you sometimes can see it in their writing where they are expressing a really strong opinion and maybe it's not backed up by facts. And then they defend that writing. You know, maybe you 
can look in the comments and see that they're uh, using expletives to uh, shout someone down who has a different opinion. That's usually a sign uh, uh, as well. But in terms of the editors who don't listen to you and who uh, who don't have a good bedside manner, um, if they're having trouble coming up with references or if they tell you that they don't want to do an editing test, then that probably is a sign that <laughs> they're not the right candidate for the job. Yeah, I love it. Well, everybody, uh, tune back into part two of our interview. Uh, we're going to be learning more of how the world of big media works. Thanks so much.